The reason we wanted to show those to you is because that's a normal response today from people. It's a normal response today to get people who go, well, I'm not really sure. Um, I'm an atheist, so I don't know if I really believe God. So wait, wait a second. If you're an atheist, you don't believe in God. So what, what is that? What's that answer? People don't know. And we need to be able to talk about that. Uh, a s- wonderful story I remember, um, and many of you know, my first lead pastorate, 15 years ago, I, I was in Connecticut right outside of New York City, and um, I would spend, my office had mold and mildew all in it, and so the first half of my day, um, they knew it, and it was impacting my breathing, so I hung out in coffee shops. That's a good job, isn't it? Um, and so I became the pastor, the community pastor, and people would walk up to me and go, hey, aren't you the pastor guy, right? Um, I'm like, yes, and then they'd start attacking me about something, and so I'd say, stop, hang on a second, I'm Joel, and I'd introduce myself. One of the guys who did this, um, he had not too long before, he had graduated from MIT, and now he's living there in Greenwich, Connecticut, and working there as well. And he came up to me, and he says, so what do you think? Do you think this God thing is real then, I guess? It's a safe bet. It's kind of what my job is. Um, and he goes, okay, well, so tell me one. So long story, very, very short is uh, we became friends. We began talking. And he goes, I'm still, I I struggle with it, right? I have a science background. This is what I know. Um, Supposedly, people tell me I'm smart, like I'm struggling with this. Uh, Just that that God created stuff. Because that's really when it comes down to does God exist. People often speak about creation. That's what they do. Now, you already know my bent on this entire topic, is anybody questioning my bent on whether or not God exists or not? He does. So I'll go ahead and get that out of the way. But today I want to give us some language that we can use and also some scripture to go, okay, well, here are some things that are vital that are important for us to, to identify. And so I'm sitting there with him, and maybe you've seen this illustration before. You ever seen the cup illustration before? Uh, maybe one or two of you. Um, I said, what, what is this? And it was a Starbucks cup. I said, what is this? He goes, it's a cup. I go, see, you got your, your education paid for right there. And he's like, very funny. And I said, what's the purpose of the cup? He goes, it holds water, it holds beverage, something like that. I go, yeah, exactly. What else can you do with it? And I told him, I said, I, I'll tell you what, I, this is the perfect cup for my kids to plant a seed in with a little bit of dirt and for it to grow up about this tall and then it falls over after about three weeks and they go, my plant, right? That, that's what happens. There, there's certain things you can do with it. I said, it's amazing because it's completely round on top, and you've got that sitting here for you. I said, what else is it good for? And he goes, well, I mean, you can just carry stuff in it. I said, what happens if you rip the bottom off? He goes, well, then you can't really use it for much of anything at all. I said, does it have any, any intellectual principles to it? Can it think for itself? Is there a consciousness that's here? He goes, no, it's a cup. I go, so, okay, that's good. We, I'm just making sure we're on the same page. I could tell he was getting frustrated, right? Went to MIT. He knows what a cup is. And so then I stopped. I said, so do you think that if there was a force that was out there that nobody, no person has ever been to, that this cup could just grow itself? And he says, well, no. I said, well, why not? He goes, well, first of all, because of the properties of it. And it's perfectly round, and it, I mean, there's just no way. There's nothing straight or um, completely round in nature, I don't think. So um, I, I just don't think that's really possible. 
I said, so you, don't, you, you think that this had to have a creator? And he goes, oh, I know where you're going now. <laughs> you think this had to have a creator. And you don't think that this had to have a creator. They can think for itself. That has a conscience that, that is able to heal itself in miraculous ways. Listen, I know that part of today's message is, is really, uh, some people would call it apologetics, about apologetics. Uh, apologetics, by the way, is the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. But a great uh, quote that I once read says that you must... That there will never be enough proof for the faithless. And apologetics, the defense of the gospel, simply hardens the concrete of the faith already poured. So I know that as I present some of this information today, some of you right now, there may be people in this place who don't really believe in God. Because if you do believe in the power of God and in his son, Jesus Christ, the transformation that that brings, your life radically changes. But I know that the number one component to someone believing in God is faith. So no matter how much I bring to you today, no matter if I give you enough insights or not, if you have a hardened heart, right, if you don't want to have ears to hear, then it's going to be a difficult message for you. But we need to think about it. 2 Corinthians 13.5. And I'd like to tell you now, there's a lot of information you're going to want to scribble today. All right? Um, a lot of passages, a lot of people you might want to write down to research. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We need to examine that. We need to discover if we are people who are in the faith or not. We need to examine where we are in faith. And so many of us are busy. We're so busy with other things that we don't take the time to discover the spiritual things. And the majority of people will spend far more time on discovering and figuring out what car to buy or where to go to college. And they will whether or not there's a God. And that's a struggle. In fact, the majority of people won't even contemplate whether or not there's a God until there's difficulty in their life that they can't explain whether they were the culprit of that or not. And so they need someone to blame it on. I once had a friend in Atlanta, Georgia, who was an atheist, and they just uh, started going through a whole lot of difficulty. And they said, see, God's not good. I said, hold up. Until now, you've always told me God doesn't exist. And he goes, well, maybe I'm changing my mind. I need to have someone to blame everything on. And that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so we look at this and we need to examine ourselves and what we actually believe. And if we do believe that there is a God out there, 
that wants to be in a relationship, even if you think it's a remote possibility that there's a God out there, a small possibility. And you're going to hear some stuff today. I'm telling you now, um, even if you've been atheist your whole life, you're going to have to scratch your head and go, maybe there is a God. And if maybe there is a God, then you need to search that out. Because it's worth investigating. One of the most popular sayings that I heard growing up was that Christianity and faith has been found difficult. And so it has been left untried. Meaning meaning that the majority of people just choose to say yes I believe or no I don't believe according to whatever will fit them and their preferences. And we need to know truth. Here's one of the difficulties about examining if there's a God or whether or not Jesus Christ is Messiah. If the Bible is truth, it applies to all the messages. One of the most difficult words uh, and ideas that we need to examine is the whole idea of post-truth. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, took the word post-truth and it was the word of the year. In 2016, post-truth. The reason it was the word of the year, why? Is because we're being pushed into a culture, an environment where you either stand for truth or you stand for love, but the two simply don't exist according to the world. And so in 2016, there's the word of the year, post-truth. Why? Because truth is often seen as dangerous. And disagreement has led, often what a disagreement means is that you're now demeaning someone. Because we live in a post-truth culture. And if you demean someone, if you disagree with them, that can endanger them. And then you have to put a stop to it. And yet God is truth. And God is love. And our calling as a believer, if you're a believer, our calling is to never separate the two. Why? Because truth is not determined by emotions, but facts. Winston Churchill, perhaps you've heard of him before, he says this. He said, the story of Jesus is so valuable that it has been surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. The story of Jesus is so valuable that it's been surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher and theologian, 1800s. He says, the truth is a snare. You cannot have it without being caught. You cannot have the truth in such a way that you catch it, but only in such a way that it catches you. And for many people, they will never be satisfied with what they believe or desire for the truth to really be in their life because they cannot allow themselves to be satisfied. They have to question no matter what. It was a a good friend of mine who is sitting in here right now. He sent me, he knew that I was preparing for this message and I should have thrown this off my phone onto the screen, but he sent me uh, the back of a car driving down the street here in Grand Rapids. There were two bumper stickers on it. The first one was the one that you've seen often. It says, coexist. Ever seen that before? Yes. 
And one right beside it said the word resist. Think about it. Are you there? That's the world in which we live today. Coexist now means, listen, as long as you let me believe whatever I want to believe, you never tell me that I'm wrong, then you're not demeaning me, then it can't be degrading, and then it can't be endangering me, then that's coexisting. And so resist anything that would speak to that, no matter what it is. And I can't help, like, automatically I see that kind of situation with coexist and resist as bumper stickers on the back of the same car. And I, I truly, I would want to knock on their window at a stoplight and say, can you pull over? I'd like to speak to you for a moment. And my wife knows I would do that. <laughs> and so she would just start praying, God, don't let the light turn red. Because it doesn't... It, it, I don't grasp that. Like, I'm left going, what? And so many of us don't have any comprehension or even idea of how to respond to it. That's the most concerning part for me is that the believer today doesn't know how to respond to that. But yet so many of us are never satisfied. We're never content, no matter what. Another thing that Kierkegaard said, he says, if you ask me for a glass of water, even if you bring me a better drink, I will be indignant just because you didn't bring me what I wanted. Um, One of the reasons I think that I've always struggled with um, what I do with my life, I, I, I struggle with that for throughout my 20s, even sometimes in my 30s, and I was just like, oh, man, I have a business background. That's where I started with a large company and through school and business degree. That's where I was. And um, yet in the midst of all that, my father, who was a pastor, I'll go ahead and tell you, he said, you've got to go discover what you believe for yourself, not simply what I've told you. Otherwise, you will regret it for the rest of your life. It's one of the greatest gifts that my father ever gave me. Because he said it numerous times. He pushed me to that. And so I just, I just kept searching and looking. And yes, I was a believer in Christ. But I, I just wanted to know, how, how serious am I going to really take this? How is it going to infiltrate my heart and my life? And as I kept looking, I recognized that, you know what, it's true. God does exist. His son, Jesus Christ, was given for us, and it changed the world, which means it needed to change me. And what that did is it took away this mentality of only looking for stuff that proved the point I wanted to already make. And it took me to the place of discovering truth for itself and letting truth define who I would become rather than trying to find snippets of evidence so I could be who I desired. Do you see the difference? Yes? If not, I want to say it differently. This is a unique sermon. Because that's important for us. And so all of a sudden, I started to look for truth and to try to discover who Christ was so that the the evidence I found and the belief that I had would then tell me who I need to become rather than trying to find information that would support who I wanted to be 
prior to that understanding. Because a lot of us, one of the hardest things to do is to shape your mentality and your thinking, to alter what that is. And so some of us, whether or not you use these words or not, we will fight against that. And so we want to, we want to find every shred of information that can support who we already are, rather than possibly undergo the transforming power of Jesus Christ in our life. That's why my job isn't all that difficult, because all the information's already given. It's right here for us. But here are the two primary claims scientists um, have come up with over the last hundred years. Many, many scientists, and I know there's a lot of different ways to approach this. But over the last hundred years, two primary claims of scientists that I think strongly support God. One of the claims is this, that the, un- that the universe has a beginning. More and more people are coming to the fact that some say, no, it doesn't have it. It does have it. But more and more scientists, there's an increasing percentage of scientists who says that the universe has a beginning, which means that something had to start it. Two is that the universe is finely tuned for the existence of life. If you don't think it is, I want to give you some numbers. According to numerous scientists today, the probability of life, here's the probability of life without a creator, is 10 raised to the power of 10 and then raised to the power of 23. It's 10. Any math teachers in here? Because the rest of you are going, huh? Right? I had to read this numerous times. It's 10 raised to the power of 10 raised to the power of 23. That's more zeros than there are particles in the universe. That's the probability, meaning of scientist. In preparing for this, uh, yes, I went to Scripture. I went to the Word. I'm going to get to some of that in a second. But I also, I just went straight to Google. I wanted to see what was out there today, right? Because I think a lot of pastors, they only look where they want to look as well. So I can't tell you to do that and not do it myself. And so I went to Google and I said, does God exist? And what are scientists saying 2017 about the existence of God? And I read some things that made me angry, I will not lie. I wanted to jump through my laptop, start tackling someone. And I read some other things that I go, man, like I, I hurt for some of the writings I heard for him. I'm like, that's like the resist and coexist at once. I'm, I just was confused and I'm going, wait a second. Like they're so just lost. And so I'm searching for those things, trying to figure out all of these things. Uh, one of the most familiar ways that we identify whether or not there's God or not is Pascal's wager. P-A-S-C-A-L, Pascal's Wager, something to go, go research it, Google it. If you don't already know what it is, um, I'll give you a brief summary, but it's a great way to be able to speak and uh, to talk about it. He says that people should believe that God exists and believe in him because if God doesn't exist, you only have a small, finite loss and pleasure in your world today. But if God does exist, you stand to receive infinite gains, eternal life, and you avoid infinite loss separation from God. 
to me, Pascal's wager doesn't necessarily yell out and say, you better believe, but what it does say is, you better figure it out. And figuring it out doesn't mean you simply find a small bit of information that supports what you already believe. You search it out. Many of you also have heard of Richard Dawkins. I know this is a hard way to make a case for God exists because I'm using people who are atheists. Richard Dawkins was born in 1941, English uh, ethologist and atheist. He is well known for his criticism of intellectual design and creation. Uh, Still with us today. um, And he was being presented a situation as he has spoken to tens of thousands, if not uh, hundreds of thousands of people about this topic. And he was presented with a situation, and, and someone was asking him, is there such a thing as evil? Because if yes, there's an assumption, if there's such a thing as evil, there's such a thing as what? Good. And if so, then how, Mr. Dawkins, Dr. Dawkins, would you define good? Because if it's based on your feeling, then it's subject to whatever one person wants at that time. Without God, you cannot arrive at a moral law. And so now Richard Dawkins has said that there is now no such thing as good, but there is also no such thing as evil. Because if there is an argument against God, it does not work. And so we can now make no moral pronouncement of any kind. The person asking the question then stood and said, so what was the person when I was a child who took me aside and raped me? Was that not evil? His response was, well, there's no such thing as evil. I guess that's just who they were. Guys, there's evil in the world. Which means there's good in the world. And good has to be defined. Morality has to be defined. Numerous times, hundreds of times in my life I've spoken, you cannot define morality apart from Jesus. Because as soon as you do, what happens is it's all based on preference. You can't tell anyone else that they're wrong. You can't tell anyone else that what you're doing is not right. And there are wrong things that are happening in our world today. I don't let my kids watch the news often because of what's on the news. And you know that it's something that is wrong, something that is evil when you watch it and you're trying to figure out how quickly you can turn it off because you know that it is evil. You know that it's evil that is murdering people and raping people. You know that it's evil that is doing horrific things in this world today. And if there is evil, there has to be good. And that good has to have something that defines it. And that's God. You talk about the cup. Well, there's no way that that can exist without a creator. How can our conscience exist of knowing these things without a creator? Too many people today are running from the idea of God because you don't want to take the responsibility of what it means when there is a God. Because you'd rather run so hard toward your preferences 
rather than running towards something so much greater in what God has for your life. A British physicist, uh, Roger Penrose, 2004. Uh, He's a well-known physicist and scientist today. Um, And he put forward a vision of a universe composed of three independently existing worlds. And that's Penrose, P-E-N-R-O-S-E, if you want to look that up. He put together this idea of three independently existing world worlds. One was mathematics and where that comes into play. One was the material world. And then thirdly, he came up with the world of human consciousness. And he acknowledged that it was a complete mystery. It was a complete puzzle to him. How the three interacted with one outside of the ability of a scientific or other conventional rational model. For example, how can atoms and molecules create something that exists in a separate domain that has no physical existence, meaning human consciousness? And he's concluded there must be a creator, there's, there must be a God. I'm going to give you a few more important arguments for God. They're going to show up on the screen. You might want to write these down. One would be cosmological. The universe is in an effect that requires an adequate cause. Something has caused that, and the only sufficient cause is God. Cosmological, that's what that is. And it's this law of casuality that says every finite thing is caused by something other than itself. Psalm 19.1, some scripture that would go with that to me is, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everything is an effect that requires an adequate cause. Teleological is another one, and yes, that is the word. It says that the universe not only proves a maker, but it also proves a designer. There is an observable purpose in the universe that argues for the existence of God as its designer. Romans 1, 18 through 20, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For he is invisible, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What I'm doing here is very simple, guys. I'm giving you scientific terms that now. I think are being supported with the word of God. It's a both and here. Anthropological is another. It says since 
That what that really means is since man is moral and intellectual, he must have had a maker who is the same. That's what the definition means. That, that our moral nature, our conscience, our emotional nature argue for the existence of God. Because it's not a scientific property that you're simply speaking about. The emotional components, the consciousness of who we are is arguing for the existence of God. And so Acts 17, 29 says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Another thing that amazes me about when you speak about the existence of God is, guys, this has been going on for thousands of years. <laughs> we, we think today is unique. Today is unique in, the, in, in terms of technology. But there's been ebbs and flows of this throughout the world. And every single time, what comes is a revival at the end of it because of people acknowledging the greatness of who God is. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is stepping into Athens. Um, Athens was a place at the time that was very similar to where we are today and their worship of other gods, right? And, and guys, we all worship. It's just a matter of what we're worshiping, right? Some of us worship ourselves. Some of us worship other things. But we're all worshiping. It's just a matter of what you are worshiping. And so now Paul is here in Acts chapter 17. And he's stepping in to this place, a world of just confusion. He had started in Thessalonica. And now he's going to wait for a couple of his friends in Athens. And as he's there, he's going into Athens. And he's, he's discovering this world that is so confused. And as he's waiting for his friends, uh, Silas and Timothy, he's put in the situation of, of seeing all of these people worshiping false gods. And so he goes to the court there, right? We know what it is. He goes to Mars Hill, the court that's called Mars Hill. It's the same court where Socrates had been uh, demeaned and, and put aside 400 years earlier. So now he's walking in to that same place, and he's wanting to speak to them. And it's not a court that would automatically kick you out, but it was a court that said, is this guy smart enough to listen to? That's what it, the purpose of it really was. And so he's going into this, this city, and he starts to give this sermon and this, this speech about the fact that there's a greater way and a greater understanding because he sees how many people are lost and how many people are hurting and he begins to confront a bunch of people who don't really know God. And he encountered in that place, in Athens, this is 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, he encountered atheism. And we always hear that word. If you don't know, atheism is simply a lack or of belief in the existence of God. And so he was encountering atheism. And he was create, uh, discovering different philosophies. And philosophy is man's attempt to answer life's greatest questions. So he had all these ideas that they were throwing around. And people were saying, well, this could be true. And this could be true. And this could be true. I looked up the word philosophy just for fun in the dictionary. This is what it says. It's interesting to me. It says, all learning exclusive of technical precepts 
and practical arts, meaning the sciences and liberal arts, exclusive, listen to this, exclusive of medicine, law, and theology. And so Paul went to Athens and he discovered a bunch of people trying to define something the wrong way. He found paganism running rampant. Paganism is man making God in his own image. Easy way to say it. Paganism is what I was really speaking about before in terms of how today what we have done is we're attempting to create a God that would serve our own preferences rather than allowing God to dictate our lives and to instruct and to guide and to help and to nurture. That's paganism. There are so many pagans today trying to come into our own lives and make God in the image that we desire him to be so that we can do what we want. So Paul discovered this city, Athens, full of idols, and he saw the glory of God not going to God, and it moved him emotionally. I mean, that's the thing. When we showed you those videos before of a couple of people on the streets in Grand Rapids, um, the girl at the end, I wish I would have been there because I just wanted to hug her. When someone is saying, well, I'm an atheist, I'm not sure if I believe in God, and, and things like that, I'm going, wait, I just wanted to hug her. I hurt for her because she is confused and she doesn't know. Yet she, she likely doesn't have anybody trying to help guide her and instruct her in the aspect of who God is and how he loves her and how God cares for her. This is the same reason I would argue that, and, and I know this can stir the pot, but I argue all the time that those who don't hurt for the lost and it's simply because they themselves are lost. They simply don't know it. And so he encounters this. He becomes emotional with it. And he wants to tell them about who God is. And so he begins to speak to them in Acts chapter 17. And he says words like this. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Paul knew that they had been hung up on trying to find the unknown God. And so he tells them who he is. And he introduced theology, a proper view of God to them. And this is how he started. He started with creation. Over and over and over again, what we discover is that God has been revealing himself to the world. 
one of the mysteries and the things about God that amazes me so much is that God continues to reveal himself even to a world that continually spits in his face. God revealed himself with creation, but he also did so with the burning bush. I want you to think about that for a moment. In Exodus 3, 20, uh, Exodus 3, 2 through 4, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. God has revealed himself in the burning bush. God has revealed himself through creation. He has done it time and time again. In fact, I would tell you now that not only has God revealed himself, but that God has shown himself. And he showed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 1.3. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's one of the first things I said as I started today. I want to read this to you again. Proof is never enough for the faithless. Proof is never enough for the faithless. I think there's two primary things that come out of today. For those of you who don't know if you believe in God or not, um, you've got a really big question to figure out. If there is a God, that's going to alter everything else in your life. Right, I think about teenagers, I think about college students. Because we've, this is what we've raised teenagers and college students to do. Chase your own dreams and do whatever you want. Anything is possible that you desire. And as a believer in God, I think that's bad teaching. I think that's poor parenting. Sorry. Because I think the message is, if there is a God that is eternal and that you can know life through him by his son, Jesus Christ, that you can pursue, then that means to me, the question, and if you're 19 years old or 16 years old or 22 years old, it, the question is not, what can I do for myself? The question is, if God is real, what kind of life can I live that gives glory to his name? That changes everything. And for some who are already believers in, in who God is and what he has done, we have to ask ourselves, how far down how, have we allowed that message to penetrate? Because for some of us, it's on the surface. 
And it's just sitting on top, and anybody can come around and push it right over, and it's gone. And we go, well, now what do I do? And we need to allow it to penetrate so deeply that it jumps into our bloodstream, and it's going through our veins, and it's what's causing our heart to beat and to thump. It's causing our lives to look differently than everybody else. And here's the thing. You can get on to me for believing in God if you want to, but the message that comes out of my life because of the existence of God is this. He has changed the world, and he loves you. And if that's a dangerous message for you, because of what that means that you will now have to change, I'm not even sorry. Because you need to confront that. If if this has a creator, I assure you that you have a creator. And he loves you. I have no idea why we resist him so much when he says things like, I have greater plans and purposes than you could ever imagine for your life. Oh, I hate you. I love you so much that I'm going to give you my son to die for all of your mistakes. He is not a vengeful God. He is a good God. Here's a question. Will you believe? So God, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would just continue to stir our hearts that you would allow us every single person in this room regardless of where they are in their spiritual walk that you would allow every single person to allow you to take another step that they would allow you to penetrate further even if that penetration simply allows them to now honestly ask the question and to discover the truth. And for some of us, we need to allow the message and the existence, your existence, oh God, to penetrate deep enough to actually matter in our life, to to control and to help guide and to direct all of our decisions. Because we believe that your way is higher than our way, is greater than our thoughts. God, give us humility to recognize that we are not God. But we get to serve you, God. In Christ's name.